From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, the race for the Republican nomination for president is coming south in the aftermath of Donald Trump's convincing victories in Iowa and last night in New Hampshire. When you win Iowa and you win New Hampshire, they've never had a loss. I'm Greg Bluestein. Despite her second place finish last night, Nikki Haley told supporters the race is not yet over. And the next one is my sweet state of South Carolina. President Biden will head to South Carolina, too, for a Democratic primary less than two weeks away. The Palmetto State gives him the first real test of whether the diverse coalition that sent him to the White House in 2020 is still with him. AP politics reporter Meg Kennard and political analyst Rick Dent join us with a look at where the race for president stands now. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. I'm Bill Nygut in the Atlanta studios of WABE. We have a full house of expert political observers joining us today. Uh, Tia Mitchell, our Washington correspondent. We missed you in the headlines, Tia, but want to make sure everybody knows you are here helping me host the show today. Absolutely. I'm here. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Politically Georgia family. (laughs) Thanks, Tia. Last night, Donald Trump beat Nikki Haley by more than 10 points. Um, and uh, let's uh, listen for just a moment to what Trump had to say first at his uh, victory party uh, in New Hampshire. We're way up on everybody. We're way up on Biden. And over the last couple of months, if you check and you have to remember in 2016, they were saying, oh, what does he know about elections? He's not going to win. He can't win. He can't. Well, we won. And we got millions, and you can check this, and I hope the cameras don't turn off because they hate this, but we got millions and millions of more votes the second time. Right, Mr. Congressman? Millions and millions of more votes. And, uh, but we had COVID, and they used COVID to cheat. He was very disrespectful, very derisive in his comments about Nikki Haley uh, last night, Tia. Yeah, and we know that's, what Trump does against his perceived political enemies. And so um, I wasn't surprised that he continues to go against Haley. You know, he would like to clear the field and and let the primary season end. And I think he and his allies are frustrated that she refuses to do so because quite frankly, at the end of the day, the, Yes, the odds are not in her favor. There's no clear pathway. But as long as she's in the race, Trump still has to worry about the possibility of a Nikki Haley surge. And um, I think that's why she's staying in the race. Um, she, She and her team aren't yet willing to, you know, allow Trump to take this thing and go. Now, eventually she may not have any choice, but. Nikki Haley is dug in, and that's the one remaining thorn in Donald Trump's side. Greg Bluestein, I think you were with Nikki Haley last night. She um, decided, um, knowing that she was going to come in second, the the race was called almost as soon as the all of the polls closed, right after 8 p.m. in New Hampshire. Um, and she wanted to get out and talk to her crowd before Trump did. And she made a speech in which she uh, said, no problem. We're on to New Hampshire. What was it like? What was the feeling among her people in uh, in uh, in that room last night, Greg? Yeah, well, you know, it sounded like a victory speech, right? Uh, even Donald Trump commented on that, saying she's acting like she won. Uh, you know, and it came so quickly after the polls closed. I mean, it was minutes after Meg Kennard was one of the first reporters to tweet that, uh, that the AP had called the race for Nikki Haley. 
that we saw, we, we heard from Nikki Haley saying that she's going to fight on. I can tell you, though, there's a lot of skepticism in that room, too. And there was, you know, sign-waving supporters. But a lot of folks in that room, or at least several of them, told me privately how worried they are that she's actually going to stay in the race until uh, until South Carolina's February 24th primary. And we've already started to see some of the blowback here in Georgia with Rich McCormick, the congressman from Suwannee, who already endorsed Donald Trump. And he's not a Trump fan. Trump actively opposed him in, in, uh, in the 2022 uh, primary. And then we just heard this morning from the Georgia GOP chair and the two Georgia RNC members who are saying Nikki Haley should step aside and make way for Donald Trump. Meg, um, we are told we've we've seen reports that show us that the Haley uh, campaign and this PAC supporting her spent more than seventy one million dollars between Iowa and New Hampshire. Ninety nine percent of the money went to Iowa and and more to New Hampshire. Um, and yet she's already we think bought uh, ad time in South Carolina. That doesn't mean she's moving forward necessarily, does it, Meg? Well, she is already up with two new ads today that are part of that $4 million statewide South Carolina buy that you referenced. So, you know, from everything that she is saying and from what we're seeing from her campaign directly, this is a forward move. I just got off the phone just before we went on air with um, SFA, which is Stand for America. That's the super PAC that's supporting Haley's candidacy. Their chief strategist had a briefing with reporters where they indicate the same. You know, they're following Haley's lead, obviously, as the candidate, but they intend to also be up on air, to be in mailboxes, to be knocking on doors, to be online, to be doing all of those things over the next month to support her in South Carolina. She's not competing in the Nevada caucuses where Mm -hmm. Trump will clearly be part of that conversation. She is today also addressing um, caucus goers in the U.S. Virgin Islands, which hold their balloting in a couple of weeks as well. So all signs point forward, at least at this point. Um, I want to get into uh, South Carolina and the dynamic there in more depth in a couple of minutes. But before we leave New Hampshire entirely, Rick Dent, um, what we learned last night in terms of the results for Trump is that his base is ferociously supportive of him, no matter what. They are there. They will turn out for him. Um, so those conservative voters, he's got nothing to worry about with them moving forward, Rick. Oh, yeah. I, I think that was the message last night that the Republican Party has decided. Republican voters know exactly who they want. It's Trump all day long. I was fascinated by the exit polls. There was one, a majority say that even if he's convicted of a felony, he is their choice. He's their president. Um, so they're there. And the other thing is turnout. You know, they are going to turn out for him. And in the general election, that's going to be something that Democrats have to worry about, um, especially with a Biden who may not inspire a turnout on the Democratic side. So you you are absolutely right. It is ferocious. But it's like I told you before, they've been waiting for three years to send a message. And this is their first opportunity to do it to the rest of the United States, that this is their man. They don't like the way things are going. And by God, they're, they are with him 100 percent. Yeah, I hear from Meg on this, too. But that's the challenge for Nikki Haley moving forward, of course, is that if there was a state that she could pick up, at least in this early going, it's New Hampshire. It's much more moderate, a huge number of independent and swing voters, a lot of college educated voters, um, suburban, you know, there, there, at least there's a big part of Southern New Hampshire that's suburban. And so she tends to do better with those electorates. And the and the exit poll showed she did, right? The exit polls showed she, she carried a lot of independent swing college educated voters. But of course, it wasn't enough in New Hampshire. And then when you turn the race to South Carolina, to Meg's backyard, you have a, mo- a lot of a Republican electorate that reflects Georgia more, right? You have a lot more evangelical base of Republican voters, more rural, uh, more more demographic blocks that tend to back Donald Trump. And as we've seen in early polls, he's polling at 62% about average in, in South Carolina. That's before Nikki Haley's TV ad campaign and all the other things that she, she says she'll do over the next month. Uh, but still, she has a forbidding hill to climb right now. Tia, we got a lot to talk to Meg about. But before we do, let me get you in here for a comment or two. Yeah, I think that to me, I think for Nikki Haley, 
she is encouraged by the final margin. Like it would have been if it was 20 points separating her and Donald Trump, there would maybe be a little bit of a different conversation. So in her mind, you know, she beat expectations. She beat the polling. She beat the, what, 19% of support she got in Iowa when Ron DeSantis was still in the race. So that to her gives her a narrative that she can use to justify why she is continuing to push on. But I think the way Greg and others have already mentioned, if you can't win in New Hampshire, sis, where can you win? And so um, I think that is the reality that Nikki Haley is facing. And we need to remember, it's not just South Carolina is the next big test, but there's a primary in Nevada um, the week before South Carolina. Um, You know, it's other states are adding up and none of them look particularly good for Nikki Haley. Yeah, as we've said, uh, Haley's not even bothering with Nevada, Nevada, because she knows that's uh, Trump territory. I think it's a caucus that the Republicans have in Nevada. Um, Meg, before we bring you back for your observations, let's listen to just a little bit of Nikki Haley and her fighting spirit on display last night. Every time I've run for office in South Carolina, I've beaten the political establishment. They're lined up against me again. That's no surprise. But South Carolina voters don't want a coronation. They want an election. Meg, that's her argument. It is her argument, and that's something that we're hearing reflected today in texts I'm getting while we're on the air, emails in my inbox from Nikki Haley talking about, I don't care what the political establishment and this political leadership class is saying or doing. I care about the voters, and that's something that's being reiterated by her super PAC as well on today's call earlier that I referenced. But I think in South Carolina, it's also critical to remember, yes, Haley is very quick to remind people that she won statewide twice. And in that first campaign, she was the underdog candidate and the one that everyone wrote off from the beginning because there were all these better known candidates already in the race. And she did win that. And that is true. And then she was reelected. But that was a decade ago that she won that most recent campaign. And not just South Carolina Republicans, but Republicans in general, as we've seen across the country, have changed a lot and want different things And a lot of what they want is closer to what Donald Trump seems to represent in the party than what Nikki Haley used to and perhaps still does. So that's an obstacle that she's going to have to face when she comes to South Carolina and if she's competing in any other states as well. Rick, you you know, Bill, the problem is how do you get her out? Because under normal circumstances, well, a candidate may have money problems. So you help with the debt you get them out. Or you offer them a big office. Uh, Donald Trump is not going to do that. Um, so then how how do you get her out? And I, I don't think you can under normal circumstances. She kind of reminds me of um, the Jim Carrey character in Dumb and Dumber. He's hitting on the hot woman of the movie, and he says... Do you think you and I have a chance together? And she goes, maybe one in a million. And he goes, yeah, you're saying I have a chance. And that is how this feels right now with Nikki Haley. Yeah, she's got a chance, but it's slim and numb, numb, none. And that's that's it. Well, Greg, let me ask you about that. Um, was and, and I'm just, you know, you're I'm asking you a question that I may go nowhere. Eric Tanablad is the co-chair of her financial uh, national financial campaign. Um, I, he, you saw him in New Hampshire the other day. Was he in the room last night? And did you have a chance to talk to him? Because the question moving forward is, yes, she's made this buy in South Carolina, but you can also cancel ads if that's what you decide is in the best interest of your uh, candidate. Sure. And we just published a story, actually, had headlined South Carolina lies ahead, but the general election campaign has already begun. And it features a quote from Eric, who was in the room last night, saying, America doesn't do coronations. We hold elections. We believe in democracy and we believe in giving voters their say. So he's he's reflecting what Nikki Haley's line is. 
But I mean, my question, Nick, we have on the line, Meg Kennard, who knows who's uh, out of any reporter in the nation, she probably knows mm-hmm. Nikki Haley the best. What is your gut? I know we don't make predictions and all that, but you know, when you, when you hear all this, when you hear people like us say, Oh, will, will Nikki Haley stay in? Will st- she stay out? Um, you're seeing all the signals. She's raising money. She's got the TV ads going. Do you, do you think she stays on through, through um, Mar- February 24th? I, for certain, for certain, I think that if money is there, which it appears to be, at least at this point, she is absolutely going to continue to compete. There is a lot that gets said about candidates not wanting to lose their home state's primaries. And that is very true. But there's a different construct at play when your home state is also an early carve out state. And that's something that we can't ignore here. The calculus was always going to be different when it comes to Nikki Haley or if Tim Scott were still in the race competing in their home state. It's just a different kind of animal. So you can't necessarily look at it the same way. But from what we have seen since Iowa, since with Ron DeSantis getting out of the race, Nikki Haley still being able to bring in money. I mean, they announced that there's been at least a million and a half. It's probably above two at this point that she's been able to bring in to keep this campaign going. Yeah, she doesn't have a first place finish. I don't think she's going to get one between now and certainly South Carolina. But if that money continues to come in and enable her to get the message out, I don't think at this point she has a reason to get out. Um, it, It's going to be a brutal month for Nikki Haley coming up against the Trump forces. Tia, um, let me just play uh, our own Marjorie Taylor Greene's comments last night after listening to Nikki Haley talk about how well she did. I got almost 50% of the vote, she said, which means she lost. Um, Just listen to how Marjorie Taylor Greene characterized Nikki Haley's comments. These are fake numbers. Nikki Haley does not have this much support. She's going to come out and claim that she's rising in the polls. All these fake news media people up here on this platform are going to claim that Nikki Haley is rising in the polls. It's a total, complete lie. Absolute lie. Tonight, Nikki Haley was defeated. The problem is she's going to be dumb enough and she's going to be a fake candidate and she's going to keep going and we're going to destroy her in South Carolina. It's going to be a a complete humiliation. I can't wait to see it happen. Tia, really brutal. It's really brutal. But to me, beyond this being very classic Marjorie Taylor Greene, she's fierce and she's loyal to Trump. So nothing she said surprises me. But I want to um, dig down because to me, this Marjorie Taylor Greene clip also is very indicative of the the political climate, um, the partisanship that creates what we have now where people kind of have their own set of truths. And so when she says it's fake that Nikki Haley said you know, she's making it seem like Nikki Haley is lying about her support, lying about her standing in the polls and flipping it in a way that if you're inclined to support Trump, if you're inclined to agree with Marjorie Taylor Greene, then you'll go, yeah, how dare Nikki Haley do that? And so to me, it's it's deeper than we can discuss in an hour long radio program. But it's everything that's wrong with our climate today, because at the end of the day, there is truth in the fact that Nikki Haley did rise. Right. She did better number wise, percentage wise in New Hampshire than she did in Iowa. But there are there's nuance to it. It's more complicated than that. And without the context, it's easy for. Marjorie Taylor Greene to paint Nikki Haley as this crazy mad woman who's lying and making things up. And it's just it to me, that's like the most troubling part of what I just heard, because it's no longer just, hey, I don't support Nikki Haley. I think she should drop out, drop out of the race. It's trying to totally delegitimize everything that has happened and it makes supporters not believe what is actually the the case yeah. what's actually the truth about the polls and the finishes and everything yeah else. well marjorie taylor green and other republicans were talking about eradicating nikki haley and other republicans who don't support donald trump hey meg i want to ask you about this uh, and then get everybody else involved so um she's you're convinced she'll stay in where does she turn to get the votes that can put her over the top in a state in in your state where the polls show her so far behind Donald Trump, where does she build that coalition of voters? 
That is a very, very good question. I think it's going to be interesting once we see past today when Haley is having her big welcome home party in North Charleston this evening where I will be. But we don't know exactly what her campaign looks like event wise after that. We don't know where she's going to be on the ground going out, reminding people of, hey, look, I've been through these other states, but now I'm home, as she always says, my sweet state of South Carolina. But I think for her, she is going to need to spend a lot of time along the low country in the Hilton Head area in Beaufort and Bluffton and those areas where there are a lot of Republicans, but they are not perhaps as MAGA or populist part of the party as you would see in maybe Myrtle Beach or some of the far upstate reaches or, you know, in the Lexington area near the Midlands where I live. So geographically, that's where she's going to have to go. But it is going to be hard for her to really target a lot of those folks and her super PAC will be able to help with that in terms of their ad strategies, I would imagine. But she is going to really have to be hammering hard at a lot of those more moderate people. And, and don't forget, South Carolina does have an open primary. So in the event that there are Democrats who opt not to participate in the February 3rd contest for their party, if they wanted to, they could stick around and participate in the Republican one. No guarantee as to if any shift of the needle that would actually cause, but it's a possibility. And it's certainly something that people are already talking about in terms of trying to have an impact in the Republican Party and perhaps keep Donald Trump's number down a little bit. Um, Rick and then Greg, before we have to get to a break, I'd love to hear some of your final thoughts as we're moving on the Republican side as we move into uh, South Carolina. Rick and then Greg, please. I'm I'm just curious, and maybe the experts on the panel know, what's her end game? What is she trying to accomplish? She's not going to win. So so what is the end game? I, I'm not a believer in Pickett's charge. I just don't believe you, you run into the hill and get slaughtered for no reason. So I really don't understand the end game because the next month is going to be brutal. She's going to be attacked by everybody in the Republican Party, number, number one. Number two, she's going to have to watch daily as every Republican official in the United States jumps on the bandwagon of Trump and endorses him, and then possibly face a humiliation in her own home state. What's the end game? Greg, um, please weigh in. Yeah, it's going to be a unique South Carolina primary because the end game is so unclear, and the general election is pretty much begun, right? I mean, Joe Biden was one of the first out the gate last night to say, hey, <laughs> this is over as well. Right? He's He's echoing a lot of Trump allies saying this race is over. He's already started to attack Donald Trump as the presumptive nominee. Um, You're hearing even Trump critics here in Georgia saying Donald Trump is the presumptive nominee. Um, You know, Governor Kemp is not one of them, by the way. I should mention that. But others have already started to say that. And so you've kind of got a dual track. You're going to have the general election campaign, and then you're going to have America's attention sort of divided and watching what's going on in South Carolina, too. But it will not be like your typical South Carolina primary. Um Greg, I I think we lost communication with you and everybody else when I said that you were stuck in traffic on I-93 trying to get down from Salem, New Hampshire to uh, Boston. I I know that um, before you got into this traffic jam, you were expecting to have to move on. Are you okay to stay with us after we take a break or do you need to to, to move, move on as you'd expected to? I need to get to the airport. <laughs> okay. Well, Greg Bluestein, we're really glad you were with us for the first segment. It shows your dedication to Politically Georgia, and we look forward to seeing you back in the studio tomorrow. Good luck. I know what those traffic jams can be like. Thanks, Greg. We're going to take a break. When we, when we come back, um, there is a Democratic uh, primary in South Carolina. A week from Saturday, it's the first time Joe Biden will be on the ballot. There's not much competition there. But will his people turn out for him as they did in 2020? We'll talk about that and more um, on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut, joined by AJC Washington reporter Tia Mitchell, political analyst Rick Dent, 
an AP politics reporter, Meg Kennard, who's based in South Carolina. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgian newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from the AJC's politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. AJC.com newsletters. Rick, I should also mention that you have a government relations firm that you're involved, Matrix LLC. Yeah. Yep, got that right. And Meg Kennard, who Greg Boosting said before the uh, break, probably knows more about Nikki Haley than any other reporter in the country. She, of course, is a, an AP politics reporter based in South Carolina. So, Tia, let's move on and talk a bit about this Democratic uh, contest, which sneaks up on us. People don't realize that South Carolina Democratic primary, the Democratic primary is going to take place a week from Saturday, the Republican primary later in the month. Biden has, you know, Dean Phillips is on the ballot. Um, He doesn't have a whole lot of competition there. So you kind of would expect it's going to be low turnout, I think. But it is a chance to get a handle on whether that coalition that really propelled him to the nomination in 2020 still stands behind him strongly, Tia. Yeah, I think that the South Carolina primary, the thing that we should be looking for is um, how the voters in these kind of, you know, when we're watching TV and watching people interview voters in South Carolina, how do they talk about Joe Biden? Because it's an enthusiasm question. At the end of the day, I don't see Dean Phillips catching on, particularly in a state like South Carolina, where voters showed up for Joe Biden in 2020, mainly because they were concerned about another Trump presidency. And um, I don't think that there are many voters who believe that Dean Phillips would be better than Joe Biden um, in, in that concern. But we do know that there are a lot of voters who are concerned about Biden himself as a candidate, mainly his age. I mean, that's the thing that I think we can't sugarcoat. Democrats, yes, nobody is 100 percent happy with everything Biden has done. There are concerns wishing he had done more about things like higher education and student loan debt, voting rights, gun control. Yes, they want him to do more. But the main thing going against Joseph Biden Jr. is his age. Um, And so that's what we need to look at is enthusiasm. Are people reluctant to support him at all? Are they not planning to participate in November? This primary, I think, is not going to tell us that much because it's not much of a competition. No, but, but it does give us a chance to, as we've said, take the temperature of Democrats. Meg, how are, how are um, South Carolina Democrats feeling about Joe Biden right now? I think what Tia said is absolutely right. There's not a ton of enthusiasm. Uh, It's hard to know exactly where that enthusiasm would need to really come from or be, how it'd be prompted. I mean, it's, it's, it feels a little different. I will tell you that I've had conversations with, folks who are involved with the South Carolina, not officially the Democratic Party, but within the party apparatus, so to speak. These are activists, people who show up to all of these kinds of events. And they're like, I talk to people all the time and they're not really even aware that there is a primary that's going to be happening. And this is the first in the nation, like the thing that, you know, South Carolina and Joe Biden and Jamie Harrison, the DNC chairman, who's from here in South Carolina, talked about a whole lot last year and are just now kind of kicking off. But the fact that there are Democrats in this state that are unaware of what's getting ready to come up, as you note, just next weekend. So they don't even know that it's coming. They're certainly not going to be excited about it. And that is a problem just writ large for how the party kicks off this whole nominating process right here in South Carolina. Meg, is is that is that a sign that there's not a really um, effective organization uh, for Joe Biden uh, trying to get people uh, to turn out for this primary? I, that has been a question for quite some time. Exactly. What does this campaign look like? What is the structure? What's the infrastructure? How is it working on the ground in different states? 
And from what I have seen from some of my colleagues who have been really following the Biden campaign closely, such as it is, that's that is very much the feeling that they get. And so when they come into these states, particularly the early carve out ones like South Carolina, where you expect activity to kind of be ramping up earlier on, it has been kind of a a struggle to try to figure out who's speaking for whom and what the details are. And we are literally just over a week Mm -hmm. out from that first vote. And so I'm not, you know, pronouncing indictments or anything on, on any part of the process, but just from an observational standpoint, that is something that does feel a little bit different to me yeah. this go around. Rick, I mean, it's not as if Joe Biden won't win the South Carolina primary and collect the delegates out of South Carolina. He will. But it's the larger statement um, about propelling him toward the general election, right? Where there are questions about whether black voters are going to be enthusiastic about uh, Biden in the general election. There are questions about whether younger voters, whether suburban voters are going to turn out for him. And and the problem is, Meg points out, people aren't talking about the Democratic primary there, but there's also likely to be low turnout because the competition is so weak anyway. So what are we going to learn coming out of South Carolina about Joe Biden? You know, it's very similar to what I said to you before the Iowa caucus about Trump. Biden does have an opponent. It's Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. It's expectations. He's running against Joe Biden, and he's going to be judged by that. And it's going to be unmerciful. Where's the enthusiasm? Because you've got to remember, in the general election, he's running against a movement, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. He's running against a movement. They have the enthusiasm. So, yes, it's going to be Joe Biden versus expectations. And for me, and you kind of hit the nail on the head, I'm going to be looking at young people. Are they getting out to vote in that Democratic primary? African-American men are going to be crucial because he's got a problem with them. And any Latino vote as well. Uh, Those are going to be crucial elements to look at in terms of that kind of turnout not only in South Carolina, but throughout this process, because it's the quicker he can focus on Trump and not be Biden versus Biden, the better for him. Uh, Tia, Biden was in um, South Carolina some week and a half, maybe two weeks ago at this point, uh, talking to the survivors of um, Mother Emanuel AME Church, where that horrific massacre uh, took place a while back. And it was his first attempt in the state or Meg can correct me if I'm wrong about it, to really try to energize black voters. But we don't know what the outcome of that's going to look like. I mean, and that's the other thing we I think Biden has already kind of black voters in South Carolina generally already know and trust him. And even when he went to Mother Emanuel and, you know, you had those protesters wanting him to do more to um, advocate for a ceasefire in Gaza. For the most part, the crowd was with Biden. They did not like the protesters um, interrupting him. Um, I I think those interruptions don't play well to a certain segment of the electorate. Um, So I think, yes, I'm sure he, he and the vice president will try to squeeze in more visits before that primary. But at the end of the day, he doesn't need to introduce himself to South Carolina voters. Again, they know him. They already feel like he's shown them a lot of love, particularly since he went after he gave the state so much credit for re-energizing his campaign in 2020. There's definitely a, a long history, a long relationship that Joe Biden has been building with South Carolina for literal decades, going back to his time in the Senate when he was tight with Fritz Hollings, whom he eulogized when that longtime South Carolina Democratic senator died some years back. So it's real how he really identifies with this place. But also what Tia was saying about the voters, they do feel like they know Joe Biden, not just because he's been showing up, but people do remember that. Not just party people, but those voters that, you know, you have that ability as a candidate to get out and touch and spend time with and really get to know. And so there were there was a lot of criticism when Joe Biden comes to Mother Emanuel and gives this what Nikki Haley was casting as a political speech and saying, how dare he in this 
house of God, where let's remember too, she attended all nine of those funerals in the wake of mother Emmanuel. So she was very much a part of that healing process. It happened while she was governor, but Joe Biden knows exactly what he's doing. And I'm not saying that in a crass politically Mm -hmm. craven way. He is identifying and making those connections in a way that he's been doing here for a very long time. And I would expect that we will continue to see him do that. He's coming back this weekend. He's going to be here overnight on a Saturday. I think that means going to church on Sunday, not just for himself, but to be with a congregation of those voters that he is yet again reminding, I'm your guy. I'm still here. I've been here and I will be here. Well, you just anticipated the question I was going to ask you, which is whether we've you've seen the Biden uh, schedule. So I suppose if you're a Democrat and you're certainly hoping that Joe Biden will have four more years in the White House, it's good news that he is, in fact, uh, coming into the state and recognizes how important it is for him uh, to be there in the days ahead of the primary. He will be here for a major fundraising dinner for the South Carolina Democratic Party on Saturday and will be overnighting. We don't know exactly what he's going to be up to on Sunday, but yet again, you know, I, I presume that will involve some kind of a, a church visit. Jill Biden will be here the night before he comes. She will be doing an educators event for the campaign, but also appearing at the Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Pink Ice Gala, which is a scholarship fundraiser here with a historically black sorority. Let's remember the vice president is a member of that sorority. She spoke at the same event in 2019. These are touches that are personal, that are they're part of who certainly the vice president is. But for the first lady to be coming and spending time with this same group and showing them again, hey, we remember y'all, we're coming back and we value you. It's that's personal. That's also political, but it's very intentional. Um, thank you for that. Rick Dent, um, let, let's just look at South Carolina before we have to move on in in the broadest way possible. You have been involved in campaigns for most of your adult life. Uh, uh, We've said on the show before, you have worked for three different um, Southern Democratic governors, Mississippi, Alabama, and then Zell Miller in Georgia. So you certainly know the political landscape of campaigns. How do you look at South Carolina in 2024 in terms of it being different from what you've seen um, in other campaigns like this? You know, I, I don't know if it really is that much different. Every campaign really is about the environment in which that campaign exists. And we are in a strange, strange political environment. You've got an economy where the the Biden problem is every time someone goes to the grocery store, they are reminded about how bad this president is. Now, you can run through all the statistics and tell me otherwise, but I will tell you as a consultant, you can't pay your bills with statistics. You can't eat statistics. And that grocery store is killing him. Okay, I've so, got to, I've got to, I got to get to a break. But I want to, I don't want to leave with what you just said in le- until I correct it. When you say how bad <laughs> Biden is, you're not talking personally. You're suggesting that's how many voters see him, right? Exactly. Now. Okay, exactly. I want to be careful that's, about that's that. That's how. That's the experience that voters are having daily, and that is what is undermining that presidency. All right. Um, Rick Dent, Meg Kennard, thank you so much. We're going to move on in a moment here and talk about state uh, politics with the AJC's Maya Prabhu. Um, but thank the, to, thanks to both of you for really insightful conversations about New Hampshire, about South Carolina. Meg, the show is coming your way, and I know how much fun it is when that happens, but I also know how hard you're going to be working. So again, thanks so much for being with us, both of you. You're listening to Politically Georgia. We'll be back to talk about the state legislature after these messages. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. 
Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a special offer for Politically Georgia podcast listeners. If you subscribe today, you can get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. You'll get all our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigations, food and dining, and so much more on AJC.com. So join our community by going to AJC.com start. That's AJC.com start. We love hearing from you. If you have a question about politics, you can call our hotline. And leave that question. We'll try to get to it on the Friday show every week, 404-526-2527, 404-526-2527. Tia Mitchell stays with me from Washington. And now we're welcoming Maya Prabhu, who uh, is AJC reporter down at the Capitol. Maya, awful lot of attention on presidential campaigning right now, but you are certainly busy. The legislature is giving you a lot to do, so we're grateful that you could spend some time with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. You know, ducked out of the Senate. Senators are asking me where I am, but, you know, I'll be back over there in a second. <laughs> they miss you already. That's right. They do. It doesn't they take do. Well. Hey, Maya, one quick thing. Are you hearing it? Greg Boostein reported uh, earlier in the show that there are an awful lot of Republicans this morning in the legislature who are now saying, Get out of the race, Nikki Haley. Any chance you're hearing any of that talk right now? I have not heard that yet, but uh, because other than text messages asking me where I am, I did not get a chance to run over to the Capitol yet. (laughs) Okay. Oh, okay. So you're in the office. All right. So let me start by asking you where this anti-Semitism measure stands in the Senate. Um, We know that it came out of committee. We know the Senate in the past has been the blockage point on getting the definition of anti-Semitism written into law so that it can become an even more forceful part of the hate crimes law. Where do they stand with this right now? Um, So as of now, uh, you know, it was voted out of committee. And so as of today, after session, it will be eligible for um, to be put on the calendar for tomorrow for a floor vote. I think that is likely what's going to happen. Um, but I was speaking with some House members yesterday and they were saying that they think, you know, it may have lost some support. Um, so I'm interested to see what will happen when it makes it back over to the House because they did change it in the Senate. Tia, you want to jump in? Well, I have want to jump in more questions for Maya. Um, number one how is the session going to me? It's been pretty quiet, but I guess it's early. Is it just, it's early and it's always quiet this early in the session or has it been more subdued than recent years? So the way I've been explaining it is that it's more subdued in the fact that we all saw each other a month ago. Normally like there's more excitement and more energy in the building. Cause it's like, Oh, what did you do over the summer? You know, everyone's excited to see each other again, but we just saw each other a month ago. So it's just like, all right, back to work. So I think that's part of what's like bringing it down a little, but I do feel as though at least in the Senate, they've been holding a lot of committees, passing um, bills. I think they have three on the floor today. They had one yesterday, you know, we've been sending um, bills across the hall. I don't think we've gotten any bills from the house yet. And I'm sure that they will point that out at some point because of that rivalry. But um, to me, it feels like we're moving a little bit more quickly than normal and on, you know, some of the bigger important issues. So, Maya, I don't want to cause whiplash, but I do want to go back to the anti-Semitism measure for a moment. It's interesting to hear you say that you're now hearing that perhaps on the House side, there's some concerns about uh, this measure right now. And you're certainly welcome to explain exactly what you're hearing. But What I would throw into this conversation is that um, while we know that that um, that the legislature has been pretty supportive of Israel during the war against Hamas, at the same time, I would imagine that there is some backlash that some members are getting uh, from uh, uh, perhaps um, the Islamic community, from those or from those who feel unhappy about 
the way the war is unfolding, the way that uh, Israel is prosecuting the war. It's a little touchier an issue right now than it might have been at a different time, even though the bill is about anti-Semitism, not about Israel's war against Hamas. Yeah, definitely. And that's exactly what was explained to me. They were like, it's just a different climate than it was last year. This war has kind of changed things, Um, you know, and we do have two Muslim members in the House and two Muslim members in the Senate. Obviously, it makes a bigger deal in the Senate because of smaller numbers over there. Um, So, you know, I'm sure that they might be hearing it from their constituents. And then sometimes just if you're a Muslim uh, in a high profile, Muslims from all over the state will contact you. I know being Indian people like, oh, an Indian at the newspaper, people will just contact me and say, hey. So I'm sure that they're hearing from Muslims all over the state um, about concerns about what what the bill could do. Um, and maybe those lawmakers are taking it back to their colleagues and saying like, hey, maybe we should think a little bit more about this. But I don't know that for sure. OK, well, we'll watch that. Maya, you filed a story about this new effort to launch a more formal investigation of Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis since this stunning story broke about the possibility of an inappropriate romance between uh, Fonnie Willis and uh, the man she hired as her, Nathan Wade, her special prosecutor. Where does that measure stand right now? So it also made it out of committee yesterday and will second read this morning and will be um, eligible for floor debate tomorrow. I'm hearing that it's not going to happen tomorrow. I thought it would be interesting if they did both that and anti-Semitism tomorrow. Um, but I'm hearing it, it. They don't think it'll be on the floor tomorrow. Uh, but I expect it to move quickly um, during committee yesterday. Um, you know, it's just a resolution. It only has to go through the Senate. Um, and uh, the sponsor, Greg Dolezal, yesterday was saying that once we get it passed, it goes to the committee on assignment so they can assign six Republicans and three Democrats to the committee. And then basically they can start meeting as soon as they want to. Pia? Yeah. So let me change topics. Medicaid expansion. We have spent a lot of time on this program talking about Medicaid expansion, the Arkansas model and all of that stuff. Are they talking about it much yet? And um, do you think it has a chance of happening this year? So, um, you know, my personality is I'm a bit of a cynic. So (laughs) I personally will say I would be surprised if it happens. I think it's gaining support. Um, But I don't know that this is necessarily the year that it will happen. Um, I don't, I I don't feel as strongly about this one as I do when I talk about gambling, but this one, um, I don't, I don't know that it will make it across there. There are some, there's some more chatter. Um, and, uh, one of our new colleagues, Michelle is working on a, a story where she's trying to track down as many people as she can to ask them how they really feel about expanding Medicaid. Just a little political backstory on this, Maya, um, in, in, in part of the issue of expanding Medicaid across the state to everyone who uh, can be eligible has to do with the lieutenant governor's interest in um, either in altering certificates of need in such a way that it would allow for the construction of a new hospital, essentially in his district. He really pushed hard for that uh, last session, didn't get it accomplished. And of course, the story is that there may be a trade-off here that uh, Bert Jones uh, gets what he wants on certificates of need in exchange for supporting the full expansion of Medicaid. That was the scenario before the session started. The question is whether it still seems to be in play today. You know, the lieutenant governor is holding his first uh, press availability this afternoon, and we'll have a chance to ask him uh, what exactly is going on with that. But um, I've not uh, spoken with him yet to see, you know, the politics of it. Um, so we will, we'll see what happens. Uh, I'm interested to see what his answer will be this afternoon. Okay. Tia. And I have one more topic to ask you about Maya. I know we're running out of time, uh, vouchers. That seems to be a little bit more energy, but what is your cynical, uh, analysis, (laughs) analysis tell us? So a couple of things, right? I'm also maybe a masochist. So like I enjoy watching bills fail on the floor only because 
it's unpredictable. Like it's very rare that it happens. Usually when a bill makes it to the floor, they know they have enough votes to get it across the finish line. So when a bill goes down on the floor, it's more exciting for us as reporters. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's, that's one part of it. I do think it's getting a little bit more energy. Um, I'm not exactly sure if they've, uh, flipped enough votes to get it across the finish line in the house this time. We know it'll go in the Senate, uh, whatever changes they make, if they make changes in the house. Um, but I'm not sure if they've, they've gotten enough house members on their side yet. So, uh, that's another big story that, um, you will be watching by the way, Maya, I would like to say that perhaps you are a skeptic, which is what a good journalist ought to be in covering <laughs> uh, politics, rather than a cynic, which sounds a little too negative for me. Maya. I know. I need to work on. I need to work on my my framing. <laughs> well, we have enough time to ask you one last quick question. We've talked about a number of things that Tia and I are interested in. What else are you following, just kind of quickly, that matters to you right now? I think the big thing for me is um, a couple of things. One, I've been watching a lot of the budget hearings around uh, public safety and corrections. And so, you know, I did a story last week about corrections having only half of their, um, <clears throat> their the sworn officers, are, they're basically at 50%. Half of them are unfilled. And uh, so that's one thing I'm interested in seeing, like what they do for them financially. So keeping my eye on that, I might have a story about that. I, I have that story of yours open on my laptop right now. They're, mm -hmm. they're doing a heavy recruiting effort, you say, but they've got 2,900 vacancies in a very important position. And we already know about uh, the correctional institutions in this state being more dangerous than they have been in decades. Yes. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. We'll be back again tomorrow with Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.